This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Rabbi David Cooper. Rabbi Cooper has been called one of today's leading teachers of Jewish meditation. He's an active student of the world's great spiritual traditions and is the author of many books, including God is a Verb, Entering the Sacred Mountain, The Heart of Stillness, and Renewing Your Soul. With Sounds True, Rabbi Cooper has created an audio program on Kabbalah meditation, and a six-session learning series, Seeing Through the Eyes of God, a complete audio course on the original path to enlightenment from the Jewish mystical tradition. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rabbi Cooper and I spoke about the power of the Sabbath to restore our soul, and how to work with powerful Hebrew phrases that we can use in meditation, like a mantra. We also spoke about what David calls the godding process, as well as how we can look at angels as energy bundles. David also led us through a guided meditation that we can use at any point in our life when we need to receive help and support. Here's my very thoughtful and loving conversation with Rabbi David Cooper. I want to begin by talking about retreat practice. I know you have just gotten back from leading a week-long retreat, and in your bio it states on your website that you're a dedicated retreatant. And I have a couple of questions about retreat practice. My first is that I was talking to somebody, a young person, a person in their late 20s, and he was saying to me, you know, the people of my generation aren't really interested in retreat practice. That seems like something the previous generation really dedicated themselves to. We're interested in really bringing our spirituality into our everyday life, and we can go deep into meditation and deep into spiritual inquiry simply by practicing, you know, one day a week in the midst of our everyday life, you know, having an evening gathering or something like this, and that this whole emphasis of retreat is perhaps outdated. I'm curious what you think about that. I think it's a wonderful question. I did just come back from a retreat on the East Coast, and for a number of years it's been difficult uh, getting people in their 20s and 30s to join us on retreat. And it just so happened this last uh, ret- uh, retreat we did, uh, we had about 20 to 30 young folks who were um, comfortable with uh, the retreat idea but uh, for most of the young people, the, just the price, uh, the cost of running or being on a retreat is, um, is pretty high. However, um, our experience is that, generally speaking, it is true that as we get drawn more to electronics and iPods and iPads and computers and so forth, um, the younger generation is uh, doing a lot of different things that it was uh, impossible for them to do in the earlier days. And coming on retreat uh, these days for younger folks initially is um, scary for folks because they're used to being on their uh, iPads uh, doing social uh, connecting and all of that. And so initially the folks were a little concerned about keeping the silence all week. 
turned out that they became very strongly attached to the idea of silence as we got deeper into the retreat. And uh, it was the idea of doing a retreat scared everybody, but the actual experience of doing it turned out to be great, for especially for the young folks. And on our retreats, as an example, we at the end of the retreat, we have people come up and speak to the rest of the retreatants. We had 75 people altogether. And uh, out of the folks that came up, uh, most of the young folks came and said how much this had affected their lives and how important it was for them. And at one point during the retreat, I remember asking the entire group, how many people here feel addicted to their computer? Um, and virtually everybody raised their hands, the young people and the old people, older people alike. And, and don't, let's not forget the middle-aged folks. I mean, it was on the spectrum of everything. It was amazing that everybody raised their hand as being concerned about the fact they were addicted to their computers and didn't have enough time just to simply be connected with what's going on in nature and what's going on around them. So I guess the bottom line is uh, the younger generation is going to be heavily influenced uh, by the uh, modern possibilities of communication. And um, I find that uh, more and more in just the most recent days, there has been uh, an increasing interest among younger folks on what is it what you do and what is it that it achieves and what's it all about. So I'm hopeful for the younger generation, but I have to admit that uh, what we led with, with this idea that younger folks are not attracted, it's fundamentally true. And, uh, and yet it's just a matter of uh, getting people to experience it. And in my own case, I'm uh, I'm not addicted, but I have lived a life full of retreats because it has uh, given me the, the depth uh, that I looked for in the spiritual path. So I'm, I'm a committed retreatant, that's for sure. Tell me a little bit about what you think can happen in retreat that otherwise for you wouldn't happen in your life. Why you're a dedicated retreatant. Yeah, I think that... Um, uh, it's my understanding that most of the teachings in the spiritual world are uh, translational feelings. Uh, and this is something that, you know, we uh, read the Torah in the Jewish world. We read the Torah together and we try to glean uh, the teachings that come through there, plus a lot of other works written by um, mystics and so forth. It turns out that mystics in general have more of a retreat uh, consciousness, so to speak, that they find that there's something about quieting down and, you know, and using the the metaphor of the going into the cave. We can do that without going into a cave by simply going on retreat. And what happens is, uh, rather than translational, trying to explain things, the the experience of being on retreat is transformational. That is to say that we, we don't come out of a seven-day silent experience the same being as who went in. And what attracted me to retreats early on was this, uh, one of my earliest experiences on retreat was at Lama Foundation in New Mexico where Ram Das had written Be Here Now. And uh, I remember going up the mountain and, and sitting in a cabin for a week, not really knowing what I was doing, just being quiet for a week. And as I came off the mountaintop and came down, there was somebody who had been deeply involved in a spiritual practice um, uh, on the land. And we kind of met each other on the road and looked into each other's eyes. And I realized that this person who was a, a spiritual devotee, who had just been practicing a lot um, with a group of other people, uh, and I, who had done nothing for the week and just basically stared into space and did some mantras that I had been taught, um, we were exactly on the same plane. We were exactly in the same space. And it was that moment of realization that I had gone through a transformation that connected me with life in an entirely different way, that it was going to be my spiritual path. And it has been my spiritual path all along. I felt very comfortable sitting with the Hindu world and the, and the different levels of the Buddhist world and and um, and all of these experiences that I found, all of the mystics shared a common experience of, uh, of discussing the way I describe it usually is 
uh, if I experience a rose and I want to share with you what this rose smells like, I can use all the words to describe the smell, but it's not going to work. But if I hand you the rose in one breath, you'll know exactly what we're talking about, of the uh, fragrance of the rose. And that's the metaphor of retreating for me. I can talk until I'm blue in the, in the face, but I actually, when I have an experience that's as deep as I have almost every time I go on retreat, um, it's the smelling of the fragrance of the mystical world, and it's absolutely marvelous. It's interesting that you talked about people being addicted to their computers, because whether it's our computers or whether it's just the activity of our life, I do think for people who have never been on a solitary retreat or a silent retreat with a group, it can be a real interruption in the habitual pattern of our life. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that, just this idea of really creating a break from our habitual patterns. Well, the creating a break is absolutely um, one of the greatest things. I remember sitting on a retreat with a Tibetan teacher, and uh, it was a large retreat, and he was a very well-known teacher, and he was having a good time on, on stage, so to speak. And one of the problems that um, most of us face, and it's brought to me frequently by a lot of my students, is that there seems to be a, uh, an up experience where we're deeply engaged in something and then it drops down and, and, uh, and this up and down swing between getting high, so to speak, we don't have the right words for it, and then being caught up in our busy days and our busy lives and then, and then going off and getting high again in some kind of experience and then coming back down and up. And, and there's this very strong desire to somehow stabilize our practice at some level so we're not doing these ups and downs all the time. And this was a question put to the Rinpoche on uh, what one could do in order to balance out their lives. And he, and he looked up and he just said to them, take one day off a week. And it absolutely blew my mind because he was basically describing the Jewish approach to living a contemplative life, which is take the Sabbath day once a week. The, we call it in the Jewish world a time out of time, where you're not really keeping time. You're just immersing in that day off. And, and we call it Shabbat, the day of the Sabbath, which is interestingly put into the Ten Commandments, no less, to take off one day a week. You have to ask yourself, that's the most amazing thing. In the Ten Commandments, we have to be told to take a day off a week. And it turns out that we get easily caught in the activities of life, which is wonderful. Those other six days of the week can be wonderful. They can be overwhelming for some people. Um, but to be able to take a break and take some time off so this is the one-day-a-week idea that a Tibetan uh, teacher who isn't actually uh, talking to us about the Sabbath day, but in Western tradition we have a very strong emphasis on this idea, um, he, and he's recommending take one day off a week. So I think it's imperative, and to go a little bit further, I find that one day a week is a maintenance practice. It kind of keeps us in tune with who we are and, and what we're doing here and to some extent, to whatever degree we understand our purpose in life. But it's it's something that doesn't even have to go into those thoughts. Uh, the ideal modality for most um, contemplative folks in the mystical plane is to simply do nothing and go nowhere. And that's the teaching that we have on retreat. We're not going anywhere. We're just sitting and, and uh, contemplating. So on that level, I also, in addition to the one day a week, I like to encourage people to take off one or two weeks a year because it's that week, it's that longer experience of simply being connected with what's happening around us um, that is the transformative part. So the balance for me is that we transform when we go on retreat and we, we sustain and maintain ourselves 
when we take that one day off a week if we're willing to do so. And actually, it's interesting that it's very difficult for people to actually take that day because there's so many things in our lives and there's so much multitasking going on. Taking a day off is not only not multitasking, it's just completely staying focused on the one uh, thing, which is what is happening in this moment right now with me. And we just keep repeating that over and over again. And that is somehow incredibly transformative on all ages uh, for all people in all walks of life. Now, just to go a bit further into that, I can imagine someone listening who says, you know, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to take a day a week. I need this time for the Mm -hmm. restoration of my soul. But they're not quite clear on what you're saying, the practice being what's actually happening within me right now. How do I make the most of this one day a week, this day of Sabbath? Well, the, how do I how do I make the most of the Sabbath is simply determining what is our priority and how do we want to spend our time. In this case, it's actually sometimes counter uh, our intuition that, oh, this is a day off, that means I can write the letters I want to write and read the books that I want to read and and uh, write to, to, to people and make the connections and get on the web. And, oh, it's great. I had a whole day. I could do all the connections in life that I've been wanting to do. And that would be, from the advice of somebody who's done retreats before, that would be filling in your day with a lot of distraction of what is actually happening in this moment. And uh, so it, it is counterintuitive when if somebody is, tries to take the time off without some kind of guidance. And, uh, and there's guidance in a lot of different languages and on a lot of different levels, but there does seem to be uh, some way that it's carried through the centuries. And you can read back a 1,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago and, um, you know, the shepherds that we get a lot of our traditions from, the shepherds are sitting in the field pretty much, not doing very much, but watching the sheep and making sure that they, uh, they don't wander off. Well, can you imagine what the life of a shepherd is like, where a lot of uh, the wonderful teachings have come through, where they're the, the, there's no dialing up and, and contacting people all around the world? And I don't want to put the the social uh, network down at all. I mean, I, I think the computer is probably the greatest gift that, you know, humanity has had for connecting with one another, and it has incredible potential. So I, I, I love my computers, and notice I say that in plural, and I love, the, you know, the capability that we have. But to, the, to make the most out of a, a retreat a moment, you know, or a day of silence and contemplation is to actually switch our lives around in such a way that we don't fulfill all of the social needs that we have. We can do that for the other six days, but that we actually do something that nurtures the uh, what we call in Judaism the neshama, the one of the five souls that we have, but we're actually calming down three out of the five, and um, and the way that we maximize the time is by giving ourselves this this gift of liberation to be free, to actually simply be here, and I do suggest to folks that they. Um, have something inspirational that they can read, not to not to distract themselves. So I usually suggest if it's something that's a half a page long that you can be inspired with without reading a book, uh, if it's something that you could play uh, a CD or a DVD for uh, 15 or 20 minutes and, and something that is nurturing uh, the soul, so to speak, and then sitting quietly or sitting with the words of wisdom or sitting with the feeling of, of love for a particular individual or, or teaching, that, that allowing, that relaxing and, and settling back and, and being almost committed to not being disturbed, not being distracted, um, that's how we become whole. And... Um, so it, uh, I guess the bottom line recommendation is it probably would be a good idea 
for those who are interested in it to to learn meditation with a, somebody who's got a lot of background, we'll call it a meditation master, to learn it and to sit with other people in a group on a fairly regular basis and take a retreat with some good guidance before you try to do solos and so that you can benefit by the experience of thousands of years of advice on how to do these practices and, and what to do when we don't have anything on the agenda at that particular moment. So it's wiping the board clean. <laughs> don't try to accomplish anything. And that's how you accomplish everything that you're looking for. Now, sometimes you're called, David, a Buddhist rabbi. And, you know, in, yeah. in my own experience in terms of learning meditation, I went to the Buddhist tradition to be trained. And yet it seems to me in your work you've discovered a Jewish path of meditation. And I'm wondering if you could talk some about that. The paths are, somebody makes, in, in the Sufi world, I guess I heard this. We have to keep in mind as I'm, as I'm responding to your question that I feel very comfortable in a lot of different traditions. I feel in my early days I was a Sufi. I was initiated into the Sufi Order of the West with Pir Vilayat Khan, and he's one. he was one of the great meditation teachers, and it was at a meditation retreat that actually made me want to become a Sufi. <laughs> and then I've explored a lot of the Eastern traditions, and, and I'm pretty familiar with most of the different levels of Buddhism. And um, but my uh, and I actually when I decided that I wanted to go deeper into my spiritual path, I had to decide: uh, should I be a Buddhist? Should I be a Hindu? Should I be a Christian? Should I be a Jew? Should I be a Sufi? That kind of thing. And I ended up with a little voice coming through, uh, say, "Well, you were born Jewish, so if all paths lead to the one, which is a Sufi, essentially a Sufi teaching." Every path up the mountain has its own burdens and, and its own difficulties that one will encounter. But at the top of the mountain, the view is virtually the same, no matter what tradition you use to climb that mountain, because we're standing at the peak. And so um, I decided to follow the Jewish path initially because it uh, drew me on the level of a family and tradition that uh, even though my family was not religious, um, I had a lot of experience with other Jewish folks. And so when I made this decision what path to take, it was it was at that point just a pragmatic decision to follow Judaism. Now, um, when I, my wife and I moved to Israel and lived in Israel off and on or coming home for summers for about eight years, and uh, during the time that we were in Israel, I discovered that I needed uh, to have more connection with whatever it was that was uh, inviting me to live a spiritual life and a contemplative life. And somehow it just began to, I, I was attracted to the uh, Hasidic teachings and the Kabbalistic teachings and the kinds of things that were more contemplative. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I, I found that I could discover contemplatives in the Jewish world, but most of the mainstream Judaism that I was encountering living in the old city of Jerusalem was a traditional uh, approach that uh, was, on its, on its own, on the face of it, there's a lot of language, there's a lot of words, a lot of communication going on, and very little sitting quietly in a meditative form. And I found myself being drawn more and more into the quiet sitting and looking for individuals in the tradition who actually recommended a contemplative approach and found that there's a pretty clear um, lineage that goes all the way back for a couple thousand years. And even in the Torah, you can find uh, references to uh, what it was like. And again, the, the Torah, which some people call the Old Testament, you know, is about uh, a wandering life, about a life of, in the desert uh, with a lot of silence and a lot of uh, contemplative uh, experience. So you can find in the tradition uh, uh, a lot of potential. Still, as it was not when I first got involved in my Jewish world, I, when it was not 
exactly the way uh, people live their lives, I started uh, to lead folks in meditation. And interestingly, I remember one year in Jerusalem where there were a number of folks who had a strong background in various traditions, and we got together to uh, prepare ourselves between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There's 10 days in between, and they're called the Days of Awe. And we, all of these folks were fairly well-disciplined in uh, various aspects of their other traditions, but they were all now religious Jews. So we all practiced together getting ready for Yom Kippur, and then the day before Yom Kippur, everybody went their own way and went to their own uh, synagogue and and spent the day in prayer. And then we got together after Yom Kippur. And again, there was mutual agreement of everybody in that room saying that they could not understand how anybody could possibly experience Yom Kippur without having gone through and and spent a a week in silent practice preparing ourselves. And it 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 actually kind of blew my mind. I think all of us were fascinated by that. But it was that event that um, my wife and I decided to bring the contemplative aspect in a Buddhist form initially to um, to the West to, um, to to folks who were you know in the Jewish mold on one level or another, and to offer a retreat that initially had a lot of Buddhist um, ideals, not the least of which was just sitting quietly and watching the breath. And we did that, and as things matured in the practice, more and more Jewish material uh, was brought in, and to the point where now, um, whereas in the early days, oftentimes people would come and say, what's making this Jewish, this practice? Um, Nowadays, there's no question about the idea that we're referring to certain teachings that have a, a Jewish flavor in them, um, uh, uh, there's nothing specifically Buddhist about sitting on a cushion and watching one's breath. Uh, there are Buddhist teachings that I'm very comfortable with, and they and there's a lot of uh, Jewish material that's also very uh, comfortable for us. So we mix it all together, and we come up with a retreat that, in uh, in the Buddhist world, you'll know that there's a lot of folks who have a Jewish background who are very comfortable in Buddhism. I wanted to make a Jewish kind of a setting that was very comfortable for people who wanted to experience a Jewish uh, format. And that's how it's worked out, where I kind of measure our success in reaching out to folks by how many non-Jews show up to the uh, practice and are, are, and find it wonderfully fulfilling for their their Sufi experiences or their Christian experiences or what have you. Um, so it's 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 found its own way of of building, and one of the links there's a there are a few links that I used to the past, but there are certain Kabbalistic teachings that nobody teaches, and uh, except in our format, and it all feels pretty comfortable with uh, with some people who just first come in. They say, well, I'm I don't know if this is Buddhism or Judaism or Sufism um, or Hinduism. Uh, but it sure feels good being here. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned previously in your own retreat life working with a mantra, and I'm curious if within the Hebrew language, if there are any words that you might suggest to people that they could work with in a mantra-like prayer fashion. There's quite a few words. The one of The one of the ones that I like and actually taught at the last retreat is uh, the word hineni, which means here I am. And um, it's a very interesting word used in the, in the text of the Torah where um, this communion with that source of creation that some people like to call God, uh, that I prefer calling it God-ing if I'm going to use the word God at all or put God into uh, quotes, but perhaps we can speak on that later. In any case, there's a connection between that source, uh, whatever that is, and this here that I think is me. So the Hineni appears when uh, 
this guiding process, so to speak, is calling to Abraham, and it usually appears in a, in a double call, so it goes something like, Abraham, Abraham! You know, so it's a wake-up, and the response, when you hear a double name like that, that when you say Hineni, it's not in the simple terms that I'm sitting here speaking on the phone, but rather much deeper, that there's something in my neshama, there's something deep in my soul that's being called forth to recognize itself and to recognize the holiness or whatever that means in the situation. So it appears only a few times in the Torah with Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, and in each time uh, something special is about to happen and uh, there's this appearance or this calling to that that inner self and we want to recognize that as it makes itself uh, present in our lives. So that's that's one. The, every the other thing that we can look at also is there's a lot of mystery and mysticism in Judaism. So there's a lot of things like angels, and every angel, every great angel is a. I, I would refer to it as an energetic force rather than a embodiment of an angelic thing that has wings and so forth. But every angel has a god name attached to it. So most of the time it's Ael, Michael, Michael, or Gabriel, and that means you know the power of God or the messenger of God, or all of these kind of God-oriented ideas are touch are pulling us into a different plane of reference. So um, we have also in the Torah uh, a whole series of God names that offer a different characteristic that's that's coming forth. So you have Elohim, and you have El, and you have El Shaddai, and you have Yudhe Vavhe, or Yah, or uh, or uh, Adonai, or all, a whole series of names. There's Shalom, that are attached to this idea that we're connecting with the holiest parts of ourselves. And there were, would be some that the holiest, whereas Judaism makes a very clear and strong distinction between holy and profane, on the mystical level, it all kind of comes together in a very wonderful way. So the, all of these names of the divine, which are revealing characteristics that we all have within us, uh, they show up in the Torah. And unfortunately, when you read the Torah just in English, um, then what you're going to see is all of these names kind of get squeezed down into God or Lord, and we're and we lose a lot of the uh, the the feel and touch of what's being communicated here. So when you go off and you start studying some of the words, and you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to do this, you just begin to recognize the words and, and what's attracting us with them. It bega- each of them invites us into a contemplative relationship with what we have around us. So a lot of the wonderful stories in Hasidut or a lot of the examples uh, are, are put forth where it's well known in Judaism that there's this idea that there's an angel floating over every growing thing, every blade of grass, every weed in certain cases, every flower in others. And, all, and this angel, so to speak, is saying, grow, grow. <laughs> and when we begin to look at the world, that starts to shimmer when you bring this contemplative ideal into the everyday sense of presence, then the, sh- the shimmer that takes place is, the, so to speak, the divine sparks are just vibrating there in everything that we see and experience. And you can imagine what life would feel like like that, whether before or after a retreat, that you actually open up to this ideal of presence. In every tradition, I'm now just describing something that's common to all the different traditions with slightly different words, Um, but in Judaism, it just kind of has its own flavor and, and its own connectivity 
And in the end, we come up with this very powerful Hasidic idea that everything is God. Everything is is vibrating in this. In this it's a, not something we have to try to discover. We know it. We just have to pull aside the, the veils that are blocking that wisdom. And that sounds like a Hindu teaching or a Buddhist teaching. Or, of course, in the Buddhist world, they're not talking about souls and God. In the Buddhist world, they're just talking about you know, Buddha mind, and it's all the same, though. It's in the, in the end, we're still approaching the top of the mountain here with these ideas. Now, there are several things I want to try to pull out from what you've been saying. One is you mentioned that instead of using the word God, you like the word Godding. You prefer that. Can you mm-hmm. explain that? Yeah, this is one of the uh, most important things that uh, one can learn from a contemplative approach to Judaism. And um, there's a, a, a living rabbi, his name is Arthur Green, and he, he just two years ago published a book called Radical Judaism. And the Radical Judaism is this understanding that, there, that God is not a noun. It's not a thing. It's not an old guy in the sky with a, with a beard. It's not running a show. That there's a, there is, there does seem to be some kind of unfolding force of life that, in essence, does what we're talking about, where it says, "Breathe, so to be, so so to speak." It's the force of life, and um, in that force of life, uh, the kind of belief system that comes out of this understanding is more of a, a generalized post-denominational um, r- radical uh, ideal that doesn't have uh, this overseer who is the creator and is running the world and is setting things up for things to happen and it's all God's will. So the radical approach to this understanding and it's actually seeping through uh, a, a good part of the West, but uh, very specifically in the Jewish world, where you have this idea that the unfolding moment, as we experience it, is the guiding process. It's not something that precedes or, or it's not something that's planning a future for this idea of a creation. It is constantly unfolding as the spirit of life. And when we begin to approach it in that context, we, sw- we switch from a dualistic notion, which most of the prayers are set up on, and mo- most of the Torah is written on, that is a dualistic relationship between creator and creation. And the other, this other approach that I, I try to shape in such a way, when I say God-ing, I invite people to take their name, Tammy Ing, David Ing, and we when we when we say that to ourselves and repeat it to ourselves, we begin to realize that this uh, David Ing that I thought was the same thing because I see it in the same mirror every every time I look. Um, this is in motion, constantly changing, constantly moving, impermanent, and uh, in a Buddhist context we come to connect with the question of what is the self, what is the individual, what is the I, and that, and we discover it doesn't exist. And it's the same in Judaism as very clearly it's noted in the Buddhist world. There's, there's nothing here that I can identify as me. So this organism is unfolding, and, and, it, and it is expressing the divine just as everything it encounters. So these sparks of the divine, this is Isaac Luria, it takes us back to the 15th, 16th century, um, uh, the uh, Hasidut of Hasidism, where his basic uh, cosmology is that the creation happens, this, the, something happened that left behind a whole series of sparks that, uh, in his terminology, that a tikkun, a fixing, has to be made, and that's and it's to make things whole again, because it's all diverse. So this ideal of fixing, of pulling the sparks, and recognizing the sparks in everything that exists, uh, 
as the unfolding moment moment um, uh, arises, and we end up with a very different notion of what the guiding process is all about. It just becomes a moving, opening uh, process without necessarily um, any specific direction um, that we would want it to. We want to ask ourselves about the purpose of life, and what the RE Isaac Luria comes up with is basically finding the part, the sparks that need to be raised up, and in that context, raising them up and making things hold again so that we will have a different level of consciousness at some point in the future uh, that the Kabbalists like to work out to the details around. But the, bo- the bottom line is to, is to bring consciousness to an ever higher and higher and more complete level until we live in an entirely different kind of setting than we are experiencing today. Now, what does that mean, David, raising the sparks? What does that mean? Well, it, I like to I like to understand it as enlightened action, and um, I I have this sense that when you talk to people who are working very hard to become enlightened, um, you, you you find out that the, the becoming enlightened is a little bit slippery, and it's it's in fact I've gone around and talked to most of the teachers in the West who um, work in different disciplines. And I essentially say, ask them, do you know in the West anybody who's enlightened, truly enlightened in the West? And I haven't found anybody mentioning any very many names. Uh, in terms of the East, it's a whole different story, and it's a different language, and enlightenment has different context. So when I'm talking about raising the sparks, and sparks have this kind of sense of enlightening, so to speak, so I, I pick up on Suzuki Roshi's idea, uh, and he said, and this is a fundamental Zen idea, he says it very simply, there are no enlightened people. There's only enlightened activity. And so I, I like that idea very much in the sense that um, my own experience after many years of uh, meditation and talking to a lot of different teachers and studying under many teachers um, the sense of if you say, well, what do you think an enlightened person would do? What would indicate of their enlightenment? And usually you come back with, well, I would expect them to be more peaceful, more loving, more kind, more careful, more this and more that. And um, and then the question arises, if that's the goal of becoming enlightened, how about if we kind of half and half, work on our own process to become better beings as as much as possible, but also find the opportunities as they present themselves of enlightened activities where we go and do the kinds of things as if we were enlightened beings fulfilling our roles. So it's a a win-win situation if you can divide our spiritual lives into uh, partial sitting quietly and developing ourselves deeply and and becoming kinder, so to speak, and actually doing wonderful deeds in the world where we help other beings and we tend the world and we try not to pollute it and we go through the normal kinds of things of dealing with the, the problems of the world where we engage. So there's this some, there's a tendency to either be engaged or to be disengaged. I'm either going to be throwing myself completely into the process of uh, fixing the world, or I'm going to be disengaged and go completely into the process of living living in a cave. And um, what suggests itself to me, whether it's in the sparks or however we want to approach it, is a balanced approach where we take the time to nurture ourselves on the one side and then recognize that we're active players in the world on the other and we balance one against the other, and, and that way we don't burn out on the one and don't get um, completely isolated into nihilism on the other. So it's a balanced approach, and again, that's a very Jewish way to approach, but it's also very Buddhist um, in its way and, um, and other traditions as well. Now, previously, David, you were talking about angelic forces and the Hebrew names of different angels, and you talked about 
mm-hmm. angels as being these energy mm-hmm. bundles. And what I'm curious about is if we're approaching life as a verb, then how do we work with something like angels as if they're not separate from us? I'm asking this question because I know what sounds true. You've created a program called Invoking Angels, where we actually learn different practices for working with angelic energy. So I'd love to understand more about how you see working with these angelic forces. I, I, I think we... Uh... I think that there's a way of dealing with the idea of angels that is um, uh, that touches us in some deep place. It's almost um, touched by an angel. You can uh, imagine what that would feel like. It has a kind of a vibrancy connected with it. And uh, that, on a rational basis, uh, we would we might argue that there's no such thing as angels we've made that up and yet throughout the whole torah which is um an interesting catalog of stories um all over there's this idea of psychic phenomena that happen that are unusual and are hard to explain now um it, we run out of words at a certain point here because we, the, every, every word is a kind of a, something to trip over. It's like uh, putting something in front of a blind person, so to speak. That is to mean that there are words that I have a, a certain meaning behind them, but I, I'll, and I'll try to use them in, in a careful way here as much as possible. So there's unusual circumstances happen. Some could try to explain them away, uh, like uh, the splitting of the Red Sea, for example. You, you have this idea of a miracle, or you have, a, and then somebody comes along and says, "Well, a meteor passed by very close to the to the uh, world, and uh, that was the end of um, uh, of all, a certain form of life, and uh, we call it the splitting of the Red Sea." But some come along and say, "Is it?" Don't think about it in rational terms. Let's just think in these terms of the idea that um, Jacob had a dream, for example, and there were angels running up and down a a ladder that reached from earth to heaven. Well, there's all kinds of metaphoric interpretations of such an idea. And uh, there there are times, imagine ourselves, we all have had experiences where we've gone into an altered consciousness on some level or another and experienced something that's just um, extraordinary. It could be difficult experience or it could be a, a gorgeous experience. And the Kabbalah tries not to make a distinction between good and evil per se, uh, or with good and bad as we make that kind of dichotomy. And it, it, all, it comes back and just suggests things just happen in the ways they're going to happen. So each of the so-called angels, whether they're archangels, which means they're really big and they make up the whole universe, so to speak, or they're angels that fall into various categories of um, human angels that humans uh, relate to. There's a certain consciousness that we have. And then uh, other things that take on different kinds of consciousness, like uh, there's a, a prince of uh, the earth that's considered to be an angel. In modern terms, we call it Gaia uh, because it's something that's got an earth consciousness. And then we, in uh, some of the uh, tales, it's the angels are individual that you know they can you can relate to your your angel, your good angel, your not so good angel, and it could be. On a more rational or psychological basis, it could be the way the mind turns and what one is drawn to. And if it's a kind of a uh, uh, an energy, not an entity, not, not an angel that necessarily speaks to us on television, but uh, a, a, an energetic that is pulling us in one way, that um, and there's another energetic that comes along and pulls in another way, and I've heard this wonderful teaching recently where when you're feeling pulled uh, and you're trying to make a decision, 
and you're feeling this way and that way, before you make your decision, stop and consider which has more love connected to it. And, and, and instead of thinking of all the circumstances and the detail that's pragmatic, we just go to the heart space and say, what, what of these two ways that I can turn has the most love, will, will, will touch the most people? That we would call, you know, and then we're going to allow ourselves to be pulled in that direction. And in the context of this mystical idea, that was an angel that was pulling us in a certain kind of direction. So um, in this context, it's much more the inner search when we're dealing individually with the idea of demonic forces and angelic forces. It's to kind of look at it and say, which, which of these ideas is pulling me into my heart space, is opening up the, the greatest potential of love uh, and loving kindness that this being uh, can emanate. And uh, in, um, in the terms that we go deeper into Torah uh, through Kabbalah, there's angels for individuals, there's angels for communities, there's angels for, you know, that little business about uh, asking all the plants to grow, there's angels for the earth and all of the uh, all of the stars and planets out there, there's angels for the solar system, and there's angels for the whole universe. And as we go on, now those of us who are interested in things like uh, modern physics, one could say, instead of we, they don't talk about the universe so much anymore, we talk about the multiverse, and there's untold numbers because it's infinite, the, the number of uni or multiverses that are happening out there. And Kabbalah would come along and say, of course, we know about all that stuff, and every one of them is a different angel. <laughs> so we take the energetics or the idealists, uh, as sophisticated as they could be, in talking about multiverses and say, sure, no problem, everything is an angel. Everything is has its own angel connected with it, its own forces. I don't know if that makes any sense. But... It does. It does. I think it's beautiful. And what the thing I'm curious about is, let's say somebody's listening and they're needing some kind of help in their life. It could be who knows in what area, but some sense of wanting to call out and have a sense of receiving some type of support from something that we could call a type of energetic bundle like an angel. What could you recommend? Is there a practice they could do, something they could invoke? There was a practice that I've been using for many, many years, and I found myself coming back to it again at this last retreat just a week ago. And it's a wonderful practice, and uh, I can share it with you. We can do it together. Wonderful. And it's called, um, in Hebrew, it's Elohai Neshama Shenatata Bi Tehorahi. My God, the, the, the soul that you've put in me here, this is the Neshama, it's one level of the soul, she because the uh, the souls are usually connected to the feminine, the divine feminine, she is pure. So the practice is very wonderful. You simply, as I'm speaking, I'll, I'll just talk you through it. Um, as we're sitting here, I assume you're sitting on a chair, notice the, just notice your fe- yourself, um, you know, what, where the body's touching the chair, and just notice how the, if you just gently sweep through the body, you can sweep from the head through the face, through the neck and shoulders, and through the chest, and through the hips, and down through the legs. And you can just notice that that's very simple and easy to do. Now, using imagination, imagine that somewhere in the in the area of the solar plexus, somewhere in the chest, there's a, a light. Uh, literally a light. It can have a color or it can be a clear a clear light from any color on the spectrum. You can fill yourself with this light starting in the solar plexus or somewhere in the in the chest or abdomen and see if you can feel something like that. Just a light and it's glowing and, and allow it to just sit in whatever form and whatever size. Can you experience that? Yes. 
Okay, so let's say that you can experience that. And that's a pure light, a pure light that's connected with the neshama. It's actually connected with the, with the breath, with one of the souls. The neshama is the word for breath. So as you breathe in, let it fill the light with more light, and as you breathe out, let the light expand. And if you feel this light, it's a pure light that can never be corrupted at any point along your life. It's always going to be a pure light that shines within. So if there's anything troubling us, any difficulties we have, any things we regret, we come to this light and let it just purify and go through that thought process. And imagine that there's a there's a, somebody that you just encounter. Just imagine a, most, a recent encounter you had with an individual. And imagine that that individual also has a light. And that light is growing in their body. And that's their pure light. That's the part of them that's connected with source. So notice that your light, the one that you've developed, and the light in this other being, is the same light, the same kind of light, has the same source. So that no matter what's going on with what that human being is presenting, they have this light and it shines whenever we allow that to to recognize that. Okay, so that's our practice and just come back to yourself for now and you can speak and can you were you able to manifest that light? Yes. And were you able to see it in somebody else? Yes. Okay. So this practice now that we could make that an angel light, it doesn't have to be, it's just this purity and a lot of people have these ideas about themselves that are self-defeating. I'm no good. I should be better. I could have done this better, and so forth and so on. And if we come to the light in ourselves, it's a a reassurance because it's connected with the breath. One of the teachings I like to offer is uh, that life wants this that I call Davidine. Life wants this to be alive. And if life didn't want it to be alive, it wouldn't last more than three minutes. Because the affirmation of life wanting us to be here and do what it is we're doing is our very breath. And that breath, it comes in and goes out, takes in this light and reveals it. And so, you know, we can just, every time we have a self-defeating idea or self-hating moment, we can come to this idea that there is part of this being, this organism, that is pure. And, and it's just an affirmation. Then, once we've gotten clear with ourselves, we encounter other individuals who might be difficult for us, and, and they might be doing something that is really annoying or irritating. Fine, that's the way we respond to them. But if we allow ourselves to see shining through this other being, and every other being for that matter, this clear light and this sense of purity, it softens us. It allows us to engage difficult situations in a much different way than we normally engage it. It's a wonderful practice that I've been using for years and years, and I found myself using it again uh, uh, a week ago, because uh, for whatever reason, it just it, it just shifted the energy in the in the whole room when we were able to do that. Wonderful, thank you. You're welcome. So, Davidding, I have just one final question for you. Okay. Which is, you know, I know that you've now entered the eighth decade of your life, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. you've also studied and written about Jewish mystical teachings that relate to death and the afterlife. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, of those teachings, what's really the most important for you as a person, personally? 
the most important thing immediately comes to mind um, is uh, being kind. And um, I think it was one of the uh, Huxley folks that today on the deathbed had to do with what would you offer, kind of the same way you, you asked the question. And uh, he said, um, being kinder, being kind is, is a clue. So um, in the aging process, I find that there's a lot of challenges that, that come through that nobody nobody told me. <laughs> nobody told me it's going to be like this, you know. I want, I want somebody to tell me what this is, what, what we're facing here in life. Uh, the, in the Talmud, there are a number of classical conversations between um, Havrutas, uh, two friends that are learning together. And in the Talmud, the, the, the person who is your learning partner is the, one of the most important partners or experiences you can have in life. So on a number of occasions, the partners would look at one another and one would often say to the other who is either getting older or in the process of dying, uh, he'd say, well, I want you to come back and tell me what it's like on the other side over there. And uh, they would make this agreement, and then one of them would die, and uh, the other one would usually see his friend in a dream. And in that dream, he would say, so, no, what's, uh, what's it like? And the answer generally was um, dying itself, uh, actually going over, was easy. The the getting into that process was difficult. So the dying process is is a challenge. Being dead is no problem at all. And another rabbi said it's like taking a uh, one hair, like grows on the head, one hair, and and plucking it out of a, a container of milk. That's how easy it was to go over into this other realm. So they have a, there are many teachings around death in the sense that um, the afterlife or the next lifetime is going to be great, and what we're doing in this lifetime is you know just a struggle. We're in some cases a tikkun of fixing. We're only here to do to fix something, and in some cases that fixing happens almost at birth, and and infants sometimes die because they uh, they just did one thing that needed to be done and now they're gone. So there's, there's a lot to be said about the idea of, of death and dying, but but I'm offering this one teaching that has turned out turned out to be one of the most important experiences I'm I'm having uh with my beloved Shoshana. Uh we've been together for many years and uh, we came to this uh, place of understanding that we have in my own case my my own parents and to some extent uh, her situation as well uh where as people get older they often get more ossified and get more judgmental and get more frozen in their way and i can feel some of those uh, those aspects pulling on me um but as we meet and encounter the challenge as a couple what we've agreed to is being kinder to ourselves and to each other in this uh, incredible process of uh, of, of uh, growing older, and it, it, it there's a, a beautiful, wonderful thing that comes out of that that's uh, very hopeful. And I just uh, just this last evening I noticed a, I saw something on television where the uh, uh, a man was talking about working with uh, uh, elders, and um, he said that uh, it turns out that when people reach an older uh, wisdom in their 70s or 80s, um, it turns out that older people are happier than younger people. (laughs) It's been tested many, many times, and I think a lot of it has to do with you're not trying to achieve the same kinds of things. You're not pushing so hard on yourself. Uh, you've seen a lot, so you've seen it, uh, seen most everything that happens. You've seen it already, so there's a softness that comes with the eldering process. So between uh, 
the wisdom and the happiness on the one hand, uh, which balances out all that stuff on the other side. But the bottom line, be kinder to your beloveds, your family, and your friends. And um, I think you'll find that it works really well and softens up the, uh, the whole process of getting older. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I've been speaking with Rabbi David Cooper, who has created several programs with Sounds True, an audio learning course on seeing through the eyes of God, a complete audio course on the original path to enlightenment from the Jewish mystical tradition, as well as an audio program on Kabbalah meditation, and two books that are integrated with a CD of guided practices, one on invoking angels for blessings, protection, and healing, and a book-CD combination called The Ecstatic Kabbalah. David, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Tammy, it's been a delight. I I hope we spend more time together soon. Likewise. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.